when I meet somebody at a party and they get around to that question, what do you do? There's sometimes a moment of slight awkwardness, which can be a little different depending on how I decide to respond. Sometimes I say, I'm a pastor, which is a word that people generally have some understanding of. A lot of people in the US have grown up in some kind of a Protestant background where the word pastor might have been used. And the difficulty can be that that word comes with a certain amount of baggage or assumptions. People bring their history with organized religion to the forefront of their mind, and it can be harder to just be two people socializing at a party. People may start wondering whether I'll try to convert them, or whether they can swear around me or have a drink around me. <laughs> but people do at least have a certain understanding, usually, of what the word pastor means. Sometimes instead, I decide to respond, I'm a priest. And that word comes with a different set of associations for people. It's almost as if I said, I'm a wizard. <laughs> Sometimes people will wonder if I'm single and celibate, and then will notice my wedding ring or the spouse and children that are along with me. Sometimes people will imagine me performing obscure rituals of some kind of arcane style. Because that word priest comes with a different set of associations. A priest somehow is someone who is a custodian of sacred things. A priest somehow might be someone who speaks for one's peers before God, or speaks for God to one's peers. Again, it can be hard to just be two people socializing at a party. But there's something different that that word priest carries with it. Now, the thing is that being a priest isn't primarily a job. It's really an identity and a vocation. But the thing is that in the most important sense, being a priest is an identity and a vocation that you and I share that everyone who has been baptized into Jesus Christ shares. Sometimes Christians talk about the priesthood of all believers. And it turns out that you too can introduce yourself as a priest at parties. Although you might have to do even more explaining than I do. <laughs> but for Christians, that word priest has more than one meaning and they're all related. Yes, there is an ordained ministry that we call priesthood. And it's about people who are called to lead the sacraments and preach the word of God and shepherd the churches. And there's certainly a certain priestly quality to what ordained priests do. This ministry of being stewards of sacred things on behalf of the church. But that priesthood, to the extent that it's sacred at all, is sacred only in a secondary and derivative sense because it exists entirely to serve the baptismal priesthood of the church. The great Roman Catholic scholar Aidan Kavanaugh used to say, the church does not ordain to priesthood, it baptizes to it. And he was a Roman Catholic, so you know that he was saying something. There is a baptismal priesthood and that baptismal priesthood is also derivative of something even more basic. 
which is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Today we heard a reading from the letter to the Hebrews. And that letter says that Jesus is the one true great high priest. He's the one true steward of sacred things, the mediator between humanity and God. Because he is one of us, he can truly speak to God on our behalf. And he can truly speak for God to us. He pronounces God's blessing. He intercedes with God. He is the steward of sacred things for our behalf. So Jesus, the great high priest, but when each of us is baptized, we become part of Jesus. We are grafted into his body. We're grafted into his body. We become part of him. And when we become part of him, we're also restored to the identity and the calling that God has had in mind for all of us forever, which is that priestly role of all humanity. That letter to the Hebrews asks today, what are human beings that you are so mindful of them? You have made us for a little while lower than the angels, which implies that in the future, we're going to be equal to the angels, or perhaps even higher than the angels in some deep sense. That there is something so sacred about being a human being. You have crowned us, the letter says, with glory and honor. And there's a kind of image of that, that priesthood that human beings were created for in today's reading from Genesis. We see the first human being that God has sculpted out of the earth. And this human being's name is Adam, which really means something like earth being. And it's a word that is not primarily about being male. It's a word that means humankind, human creature. And this Adam, who I would argue is still gender undifferentiated, this one human being in all of humanity's fullness, is given a job to do. And that job is to name all the other living things. Remarkable job when you think about it. Of all the things that have been created, here's this human being which has language. Of all the things that have been made, the human being is the one part of creation that can speak on everything else's behalf. And that can also speak for God by giving things names this kind of delegated authority on behalf of God. A lion isn't a lion yet until Adam names it so. A fox isn't a fox. This first human being assigns words for things and gives them names. And that's a kind of priestly ministry where the human being is caring for all the rest of creation, noticing it, naming it, and giving thanks for it to God. Maybe you've read the book, The Little Prince, by the French author, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. And there is a prince from another planet who lands on Earth in the desert. And one of the characters that he meets is a talking fox. And the fox asks him to tame it. And he thinks about it for a while, 
And he does. And the fox says, now that he has tamed it, that he and the fox belong to each other. Before, the fox was just another animal, one in thousands of other indistinguishable foxes. But now, he's the prince's fox. When you tame something, says the fox, you become responsible forever for what you have tamed. We might say when you name something, which is in a way a kind of domestication, you become responsible for what you have named. It describes the kind of relationship that God creates the human being to have with the rest of creation, which is to care for it, to love it, to be its priest, not to go to war against it, not to dominate it and exploit it, as we in our sin have so often done and continue to do, but to love it and cherish it, to tend it and care for it, and in a very real sense, to give it a voice, to use that gift of language and self-awareness to bless God and give thanks and praise on behalf of the whole. That's what it means to be fully human, and that is the full humanity that Jesus shows us a way back to. A way of being human that is completely in tune with God. And a way of being human that's completely in tune with our vocation as priests of creation. St. Irenaeus wrote, The glory of God is a living human being. And what he means is the life that is the life of Christ. And the life of a human being, he says, is the vision of God. Now, before we close with this glorious vision, we'd better come back to earth for a moment because we probably should talk a little about divorce. We should talk about divorce because this passage has so often been used as a punishment passage been used to clobber people over the head about issues of sex and morality. Sometimes people have used this passage to reinforce the idea that only opposite-sex couples should be able to marry, focusing on the male and female language. But that's not really the main focus of this passage. The passage is about divorce. And for a long time, this passage has been at the root of many Christian traditions prohibiting remarriage after divorce. Now, it's been several decades that the Episcopal Church has been in a different place on this. And I thank God for that. My own family growing up went through divorce, as have many folks here and many of the most faithful Christians I know. The fact is that none of the divorced people I know would argue with the idea that there is a tragic element about any divorce. A divorce is the breaking of a vow. And actually, all the divorced people I know are very aware of the sacredness of marriage and the serious character of ending one. It doesn't make divorce the unforgivable sin. Actually, God is in the business of redemption. And God is present in the tangled and messy places of our lives. And there are times when divorce is simply the least bad or the only way forward. There are times when it's absolutely imperative, like in cases of abuse and violence. And then there are times when it's simply the sad acknowledgement 
that a marriage has died while the two people who were participants in it still need to go on living. But in this passage, what's easy to miss is the social context. Notice the question that these men who come to question Jesus ask. Because they don't say, is it lawful for people to get divorced? Which is how we might put it today. What they say is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Notice the one directional character of that question. This matters because this is a system in which the man has the authority. If he chooses, for whatever reason, to initiate a divorce, the woman in this first century context can be left in a nightmarish position. She's without recourse, without provision, burdened with a social stigma from being divorced. She may have to go back to her birth family and ask to be taken back in. If they may say no, she may be reduced to begging. This passage isn't about the abstract. It isn't about whether divorce in general is theologically acceptable, or at least not about that only. It's about protecting those who are vulnerable. It's partly about pushing back against the scenario in which a man can make a choice that a woman is forced to accept. And I think it's that same theme of care and acknowledgement of those who are vulnerable that makes the connection between the first half and the second half of today's gospel story. Because in the second half, it's the famous scene where Jesus says, let the children come to me. And again, in Jesus' place and time, women and children are very much in the same position. Members of society without legal standing, subject to the authority of men and easily neglected or abused. But Jesus doesn't ignore the children. He respects them. He pays attention to them. He sees them. He treats them as fellow human beings with their own inherent value, which is what they are. And what Jesus knows is that children and women and other people of all kinds and varieties share fully in the priestly calling of all humanity. In that new humanity, in that priestly calling, there's no place for hierarchies of male over female, adult over child, race over race. Rather, as Paul writes, in Christ, there is no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer even that ancient binary of male and female. In Christ, we are all one in a new humanity of Jesus, a humanity that is called to a royal priesthood for the life of the world before God.